Hello and welcome, my friend, to the Minnesota Gardening Podcast. It is my honor to have you here with us today. I'm going to do a little story time before we get into today's podcast. I first want to thank everyone who purchased annual memberships of the Minnesota Gardening Club. I was just so awesome. Thank you so much for doing that. It helps us out a ton here at the Minnesota Gardening Club, and we know that it helps you guys as well. You got to save a lot of money, and so that is really great. So thank you so much for doing that. I appreciate it. We had intended to have a bigger rollout and a lot more things going on with that, but unfortunately, in the weeks leading up to Thanksgiving, my wife, myself, and both of our daughters, fifth grade and freshman, all got COVID. Everybody had been as vaccinated and boosted as we possibly could be at the point, but Isla got it from fifth grade and brought it home, and it was just brutal. So we were down for the count and some things didn't go the way that I'd really hoped it should or would have. But I just really appreciate everyone who purchased where we are pretty much back now. We're still dealing with some just, it's such a weird, weird sickness, illness. It we had, we're still suffering a little bit from just, we call it COVID brain because we're just dumb. And it is so frustrating to just do something and not realize why did I just do that? Or as I'm doing an intro to a podcast to say, why did I just say that? It's such a goofy, goofy thing, but health wise, we are uh, physically back to pretty much normal, just some lingering cough and that kind of thing, headaches every once in a while, but just make sure to take care of yourself. I can't even imagine it would have felt like if we hadn't been vaccinated because it was just brutal as it was and without being vaccinated to really temper those symptoms and and kill any long-term consequences was a really important thing to us and so it really helped us a lot so hope everybody gets vaccinated and just want to say thanks so much hope you had a great thanksgiving we had to cancel all of our plans didn't head to iowa for family so we're gonna do a redo thanksgiving here in the next couple weeks but i just wanted to say thank you so much to everybody who listened to our thanksgiving episode of the podcast and purchased the annual membership so thanks for doing that now on today's episode episode 11 of the minnesota gardening podcast we have another awesome guest for you this fall we talked a lot about leaving your leaves and leaving the leaves and the twigs and the stems for all of our overwintering friends, the bees and the larvae and the caterpillars and all those kinds of folks that need that overwintering layer in order to survive into next year and be great pollinators and be parts of our ecosystem. So there's a lot of talk about that this fall. And so we have Thea Evans with us today and she talks with us all about how the overwintering insects and how to how their life cycle works as well as what we can do as gardening enthusiasts in order to help promote their life cycle so i hope you enjoy this episode of the minnesota gardening podcast you can see all the things we talk about and download the show notes at minnesotagardening.com slash 11 all right, today we have another awesome, awesome guest for you. We have been getting a lot of questions about overwintering insects and bees in stems and in our lawns and what we should and can be doing about them at our homes. And so we have a researcher from the U of M Bee Lab here in Minnesota. Thea Evans is here. She's the Bee Atlas. Re- I can't even read my own handwriting, Thea. <laughs> I said this earlier, but uh, pollinator garden coordinator and the Bee Atlas Research Project coordinator. Sorry about that. And uh, we're going to go from there. But uh, Thea, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thanks, Brad. It's great to be here. As you said, I'm the, I coordinate the pollinator garden at the University of Minnesota Bee Lab. It's on the St. Paul ca- campus. 
And the Bee Lab is a pollinator research facility. We uh, study both honeybees and Minnesota wild bees. And we have a big pollinator garden all around the building. It's a new research facility. And I manage the, the maintenance and for that garden and then making sure that we're following best practices for pollinators and also kind of serving as a bridge to the community and to land care staff in the university around best practices for pollinators in gardens. And then the other part of my job, I'm uh, the coordinator for community science research project. It's the Minnesota Bee Atlas. And we're just starting the second phase of that project. In the first phase we did, it was a, a large project. We're studying the distributions of bees throughout Minnesota and particularly looking at Minnesota native bees. And so we were, we had a, a section of it that was looking specifically at the distributions of bumblebee species in Minnesota. And then we had a part of the project that was looking specifically at the distributions of tunnel nesting bees in Minnesota. Those are the bees that live in stems or in dead wood. And, and then we had another part of the project that was an iNaturalist project that was really looking at all kinds of bees in Minnesota and people could just upload their observations of any type of bee to the iNaturalist platform. Wonderful. So that was the first phase of the project and, and we're getting started with the second phase, which we will be focusing more on the tunnel nesting bees specifically and looking at resin and leaf cutter bees. These are bees that use plant resins or leaves to in their nest building. And we're, we want to learn more about the plants that they're using and so that we can really kind of tease out that part of their habitat needs. Yeah. And we'll come back to uh, what people can do and how people can become active in things like that. So we'll circle back to that here in a little bit. But first, I want to ask why people should care about these tunnel nesting bees and resin bees and leafcutter bees and those kinds of things and overwintering insects at their uh, home landscape. Why should people care about that? Well, so pollinators are really important for both for our food production and in our home gardens and in our agricultural areas, but they're also really important for all of our, the native plants and our native landscapes in the state, almost all, and the vast majority of plants in our state are pollinated by bees and honeybees are, are pretty important pollinators in agricultural systems, but they're not native bees. They're native to Europe and Asia and Africa, but in the United States and in Minnesota specifically, we have about, we have many species of native bees. In Minnesota, there are about 450 spe uh, species of native bees. Includes bumblebees, which most people are pretty familiar with. It also includes ground nesting bees. These are bees that uh, nest underground, but they, they don't form large colonies typically, so they are not super aggressive. They're less aggressive than honeybees. And then tunnel nesting bees, which nest in above ground tunnels. And these native bees, the bumblebees, the ground nesting bees and tunnel nesting bees, they're all very, very important pollinators for our native plants. And they're also often more effective pollinators for our agricultural plants too. So plants like tomatoes and blueberries and a range of other crops are, are actually pollinated best by these native bees. And why is that? Well, so um, 
for instance, bumblebees do this thing called buzz pollination. It's, it's pretty cool if you're ever watching a bumblebee as it's going about on flowers. You can often hear it make this kind of loud buzzing sound. It'll be kind of going around in the flower going, making that little sound. And that's called buzz pollination. It, it's actually vibrating its wings really quickly. And that, that vibration shakes the pollen loose. And there are certain plants that that really need that buzz pollination in order to be pollinated effectively. So that's that's one way. Another way, a lot of the tunnel nesting bees carry pollen on the underside of their abdomen. Honeybees, for instance, will kind of moisten the pollen and pack it into a pollen collecting place on there. A lot of the native bees just collect the pollen in a dry form, either on the underside of their abdomen or on their legs. And that sort of loose, dry pollen, it's just messier. And so a lot more of the pollen gets spread to, to the plant. And it's so a lot of these bees will actually, like one, the native bees might pollinate many more plants in much less time than one honeybee. Okay. Huh. I had no idea that so that was. Very yeah, totally. Pollinators. Wonderful. And what can people do so as as people have like as beekeepers as people have hives and that kind of thing that is generally the non-native species of bees just to make sure that everybody understands and that i'm correct on that is that is that accurate yes that's correct are there any native species of bees that are good for making honey no there aren't so okay. we we don't have any native honeybees in this country. There are in in Central and South America. There are some natives. They're called stingless bees that produce honey, and those are really cool bees too. But in this part of the world, we don't have any native honey producing bees. Okay, so yeah, well, as we have our native bees, and and we understand how important they are to everyone. How can we? Uh, improve our systems that we've got in our landscapes and our backyards and our front yards and that kind of thing to help encourage more native bees to be overwintering and staying at our, at our homes and landscapes. I'll, so there are a few things that I recommend. The first would be to leave some stems up in your garden over the winter. And so these would be for the tunnel nesting bees. And if you have plants that are like Joe Pieweed or asters, goldenrods, raspberries, blazing stars. There are a lot of different plants that can be used for this purpose. The stems need to be either hollow or pithy, and different types of bees will prefer hollow stems or pithy stems. And then if you cut them to between 8 and 24 inches high, cut them in the early spring, and then that provides a nesting place for tunnel nesting bees in the spring and summer. And then the thing to remember with stems is that then you want to, the, the bees that nest in them over the spring and summer, they're going to hibernate in those same stems over the winter, the following winter, and then they'll emerge the following spring and summer. So you want to leave those stems in the garden at least until the following fall. And I prefer to just leave them until they decompose naturally on their own because the, the bees may actually re-nest in those same stems. In the, um, in the old ones from a year ago, you're saying? Yeah, they, they may oh, do that. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, so it's, you know, there's, I prefer to just leave them there to decompose naturally on their own. But you can, you can remove the stems after about a year and a half if you 
if you prefer. Thea, can we circle back on that to like yeah. life cycle of of yeah, these absolutely. tunnel bees and that kind of thing? So when they like some insects, they die over the winter. It's just the larvae that emerge the next spring. How do these guys work? Do they do they make it through the winter, or what what happens there? Yeah, so the life cycle, I guess if you started in the spring with the, the bees as they're emerging, and different tunnel nesting bees will emerge at different times of the spring and summer, depending on the species. Some of them emerge first thing in the spring. Some of them emerge more kind of midsummer. There may even be a few that emerge in the later part of the summer. They live as an adult for about four to six weeks. And during that time, they are building a nest and gathering pollen to to store in their nest for their for their so they'll make a cell they'll fill it with a little ball of pollen and then they'll lay an egg on top of that ball of pollen and then they'll make a division and then make, construct another cell on top of that one make another little pollen ball lay another egg and they'll do that in kind of a series there may be you know anywhere from three to ten little cells with pollen and an egg in each one. Okay. And then the, so the next generation of bees is developing inside of that stem, and they're going to develop throughout the rest of the summer and fall. And then they go into diapause, which means that it's basically like hibernation. All of their, their body systems kind of shut down. And... That's how they get through the winter. They hibernate through the winter in that same spen, uh, stem. And depending on the bee, they might be, they might actually have made it all the way to the adult stage and they're hibernating as an adult, or they might be just a, still a larva, like a, a fully developed larva that will hibernate through the winter and continue their development in the spring. And then when it's the right time in the next year, they'll, emerge as adults and kind of start that cycle all over again. So then what do the larvae eat? The larvae eat pollen. And that's it. They don't get so out and hang around and eat the leaves and stuff like that. They just, no, that's no. solely the pollen, huh? It's just pollen. Yep. Yep. They wow. stay in their stems until they're adults. So they, they do their complete development to, to the adult phase inside of the stem and they just eat the pollen that the mother bee has collected for them. Yeah, and that's it. <laughs> Fascinating. So, your so as as we are thinking about what people can be doing maintenance wise, you're recommending that in the spring, any certain time in the spring, to cut them back to I think is it 18 to 24 inches tall, and then just leave them to decompose there until until they're done. Is there a what's the best time to do that? The best time is in March or April. So if you leave the stems tall over the winter, it's good for a lot of other types of insects as well that might overwinter in them. It also can be good for birds that like to eat the seeds of those plants. So leave them over the winter and then in late March or the first week in April, cut them back. There are some species of stem nesting bees that will start emerging and flying and looking for a nest site as early as the beginning. If those are our mason bees, we'll start that early. So... But if you, you know, if you don't get to it until May or whatever, there are other bees that also will be coming out looking for nest sites at that time. So, And I have a tendency to, so I leave in my gardens, I leave everything in the fall. I don't do anything with it. I um, 
also don't really cut things back in the spring. I just kind of step on them and let them and then cover because I do an <laughs> inch of mulch every, uh, every year. And so I put just, I just lay them down under the mulch and then I put mulch over the top of them so everything can grow through. Is that, I'm assuming that's not great for our overwintering friends in there. Yeah, it would be better to just let let the stems stay standing. And actually, since you brought up mulch, I'd like to talk about mulch a little bit too. Another thing that's really great for pollinators is to leave some leaf mulch in your garden. And that's really preferable to using a wood a wood mulch, which, you know, like that shredded wood mulch is pretty hard for so there are a lot of a lot of our native bees actually nest in the ground. And they need access to the soil surface in order to both emerge from their nests and to find new nesting spots. And a leaf mulch is something those native bees can easily move through in order to emerge or to find a new nesting spot. The shredded wood mulch is much harder for them to get through. So if you're putting uh, like a shredded wood mulch down over your soil in the garden where your bees are nesting, it's going to make it a, a lot harder for them to get out. So uh, yeah, I like to recommend a leaf mulch in the garden and and also leaving some places just with bare bare soil can also be really beneficial for the ground nesting bees. And as you're saying that, how much like are you saying just like 100 square feet? Are you saying as much as possible? Are you saying a minimum of 10 square feet? Like what kinds of dimensions should, should people have in their mind for what they can do? I always, you know, I think any little bit helps. So if you just want to have a, a small area of, of bare soil, you know, that'll be, that'll be helpful there. It may, it may or may not become a nesting site for bees. Um, it sort of depends on maybe other factors, but you know, the, the bigger an area you have, the more likely you're going to be providing nesting, you know, appropriate nesting sites for those bees. But even a small area can provide mud for nesting material for like our mason bees actually use mud to construct their nests. So even having a small area of, of uh, bare soil can be helpful to the mason bees. So what other things should people be considering as they want to help our native bees have habitat in our houses? What other things should people be thinking about? So other things to think about would be obviously, you know, the big thing that we hear about a lot is having flowers blooming throughout the season. So starting in the spring and going all throughout the summer and late into as late into the fall as you can. There are different bees that will depend on those flowers at different times of year. And some bees like our bumblebees, which are active all season long, it's really critical for them to be able to find flowers blooming for nectar and pollen at all times of year. So that's, that's really important. Any resources or lists of plants that people can and should be having for that full season. Um, yeah, for sure. That the, full season. So I recommend people look at the Minnesota, sorry, the Bee Lab website, which has tons of information about pollinator friendly plants and gardening practices for pollinators. But there are a lot of other organizations that also have plant lists. The Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Con Conservation, they're a nonprofit that is all mm -hmm. about insect conservation. They have good plant lists and there's the blue thumb guide, which is put out by the state and yeah, the board of soil and water resources has, has good plant list information. So yeah, a lot of, yeah, a lot of different places you can find this information now. Good. 
And what should people be? Are there any practices that help for boosting up our native bee and pollinator population for planting or for maintaining things? Like obviously we don't want to use any chemicals and that kind of thing. Is there anything else that people should be thinking about that way? Yeah. So it's, I think it's really important for bees to have uh, a clean environment, which would be not spraying with insecticides for sure. The systemic insecticides, the neonicotinoids are particularly harmful to bees, but other insecticides are also damaging. Fungicides can also be a problem. And then, you know, herbicides can also kill the plant that bees are relying on. So I, I really advocate for using as little chemicals as possible in your gardening. My next question I was going to ask you is about bee houses and you see bee houses for sale everywhere. Are those helpful? Are those something that people should just avoid? What should, what should people do? And is it just plant more native plants and then the bees will come that way or are bee houses? I think that, you know, there's mixed reviews on bee houses. So the concern uh, bee houses, they definitely will boost the populations of, of these tunnel nesting bees. And if you have them over several years, you'll, you can have, you can get larger populations for sure that way. So the concern is that because you're kind of bringing together more bees than would naturally tend to be in one spot, and they might be nesting over and over again in the same spot that they, there might be a buildup of parasites or diseases. Ah. And so I, I think the jury's still kind of out on that. But if you, so if you choose to use bee houses, just take some precautions. So you want to be able to kind of clean your bee house out periodically or, or switch to a different bee house periodically. And, you know, again, the, the bee lab website is a really good place to look for, for information about how to do that in a way that's going to be the healthiest for bees. Um, So it's a yes and no on the, it's a, it's a on yes the bee houses. No. Exactly. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Good yeah. to know. Perfect. Um, but the one thing I would, other thing that I would say about that is that it's really important to, I, there are companies that will actually sell bees along with the bee houses, like sell the cocoons. And then I, and we don't recommend buying bees from other parts of the country. It's better just to put the bee house out and let the native bees that are in your area already come and find that rather than to import bees from another area. And that's because those bees could be bringing diseases or pests with them. And we don't want to be spreading, spreading that around. Right. That totally makes sense. Perfect. All right. Well, Thea, we are at the uh, end of our time. We've got some some quick fire questions for you that are not okay. necessarily native bee related, but you can make them as native bee related as you want them to be. But we will start with the uh, first quick fire question is what is your favorite food grown in Minnesota? Oh boy. I love food just in general. So that's a really hard question. <laughs> but you know, at this time of year it's hard it's hard not to love apples. I'm a big fan of sweet tango apples. So that's a good Minnesota. Sweet variety. tango is rocking. Yeah, I really like yeah. the sweet tango. And it's newer, so if people haven't tried it, make sure to try sweet tango exactly. What is your favorite place to visit in Minnesota? Another hard question. I like all of the I I really like the scientific and natural areas in this state. 
there are a lot of them all in all parts of the state, and they're just really interesting places to visit. Any so, any recommendations for one or two that people shouldn't miss? Well, okay, so in this area, in the Twin Cities area, I'm in the Twin Cities, I'm in Minneapolis. I like to go to the St. Croix Scientific and Natural Area. It's right on the St. Croix River over in the Stillwater zone, and it's got this, some, some beautiful kind of bluff dry prairie areas and savanna. So just some some kind of unusual native habitats that you they're really rare in this state now. Got it. And uh, next question is, what is essential reading for you, Thea? Essential reading? Well, okay. Um, Pollinator-specific essential reading, I would say, are Heather Holmes' books. I'm sure have you, I would check, I would encourage your listeners to uh, check out her website because she has a lot of amazing information about pollinators and she's written some really beautiful books about Minnesota native bees. And then she just has one that just came out about Minnesota native wasps, which is also really interesting. So Amazing. Well, that's good. Perfect. And then the last question is, and I always preface this, that this, when we were deciding what to do with the podcast, uh, I was asking my family while we're eating supper one night, what we should do for quick fire questions. And this is a question that I think is my favorite one of all of them that came from our 10 year old. So Isla was very excited about this question, but if you were a plant, what plant would you be? Oh, I would be a burr oak tree because I think burr oak trees are amazing. And They provide so much habitat for so many different types of animals, and I think they're just really cool-looking trees. I'm 100% on board with that. That is exactly what I would be as well, so perfect. Well, (laughs) Thea Evans from the U of M B-Lab, thank you so much for being with us. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about our native bees and pollinators and overwintering insects that I should have asked you that you'd like to make sure everybody knows? Yeah, it just occurs to me that... um, I also want to just be clear that most of our native bees, the ones that nest in tunnels and in the ground, they're all very gentle bees. They're, they're much less aggressive than honeybees or the social wasps like yellow jackets that might come to your picnics. And the, these, these bees, they're all, they're all extremely gentle and they're, they're very, very unlikely to sting. So you don't have to worry about encouraging them to be part of your garden and landscape. They're not, they're not a threat in any way. That is a beautiful place to end. So, Thea Evans, thank you so much for being with us. Will you let everybody know where they can find, and I'll put in the show notes as well, like links to everything, but will you let everyone know where they can find you if they have questions or if they want to talk more about uh, Native Bees? Yeah, absolutely. You can contact me at atlas at umn.edu. That's my university email. And, and then you can also check out a couple of iNaturalist projects. If you want to uh, contribute to those, the Minnesota Bee Atlas. And then we have another one called Mega Kylie Bee Leaf Cuts. And uh, I forgot to circle back to that, even though that I had a note to circle back to that. I didn't pay attention to my notes. So will you quick give everybody what like the Bee Atlas uh, does and how specifically they can participate and what, what they would be doing? Oh, sure. So the iNaturalist project is just something that anybody can contribute to. You just take pictures of bees and the, the more in focus it is, the better, obviously, <laughs> then, then you upload it to the iNaturalist page. And there are a lot of bee experts who are on that page that will help identify the bees that you upload. 
So you don't have to know what the B is to upload it and contribute to that. And then for the the other part of the community science project that that we're running that is just starting now, we're looking for people to host nesting blocks throughout the state. So in all parts of the state, if somebody was interested, they we would send them a nest block and then they could make observations of nesting in that block. We're asking people to do that twice a month. And then they send it back to us in the fall and we overwinter the bees and rear them the following spring. And we actually are have almost as many volunteers as we can take right now for that project. We've had a lot of interest in it already. But if we could still use a few more people in the very, very far northern parts of the state or in the very far kind of southwestern parts of the state would also be helpful. So if there are people out there. And what is a nesting block? Oh, a nesting block is, so it's like a block of wood that has tunnels drilled in it. It's basically like a bee hotel. And we put it out for the bees to nest in. And then we can bring them back to the lab. And we're making ones that can open easily so that we can then take out a little bit of the nesting material and analyze it to see what plants they're using. Wonderful. Perfect. All right. Well, I won't ask you any more questions since I'm doing like the long Minnesota goodbye on this on this podcast today. So I apologize for that. But thank you so much, Thea, for being here. And I hope everyone has learned a lot about overwintering bees and what people should do to help encourage them being in our landscape. See what I mean? Thea was just so much fun to talk to and just so incredibly knowledgeable about overwintering insects in our landscapes. So again, you can see and all the links and all the information we talked about at minnesotagardening.com slash 11. And with that as well, I want to let you all know that through Christmas of this year, we are going to run Leave the Minnesota Gardening Club membership open and available to everyone. So you'll be able to join the Minnesota Gardening Club for either $12 a month or $117 per year. So we're going to have those. The annual membership was really popular with folks. And so I just want to really give that as an option out there for everyone. So you can purchase that for yourself for $12 a month or $117 for an annual membership. And then as well, we're going to do gift memberships. It's a six-month gift membership that you can purchase for someone else or yourself for $67 for six months. And so that's uh, there's just a little checkbox that you can, you can mark as a gift on there for the Minnesota Gardening Club. And this is just a one-time six-month purchase. And so there won't be recurring charges on there at all. So this is just six months. And then whoever you purchase the gift for will be able to extend that if they'd like, or you can purchase that whatever makes the most sense for you guys. So again, it's $12 a month for new memberships for our winter memberships. And we were going to be working a lot this winter on planning out our gardens for 2022. We're going to talk about a lot about native pollinator plants and different native sites of perennials and shrubs and trees that will really help our ecosystems. We're also going to be working a lot on the starting of seeds so that we're ready to go for 22. So that is a really great thing. So again, $12 per month, $67 for a six-month gift, and $117 for an annual membership. And so you can find all that at minnesotagardeningclub.com. And next week, we have Yet another great episode for you. We've got the incredible meteorologist Sven Sungard, used to be with Care 11, now with Bring Me the News and some other folks doing the news. And so Sven Sungard is with us to talk all about the winter forecast so you can know what to expect this winter for the uh, weather we've got. So I'll see you again next week. Have a great week. 